I invite our children forward for a story right up here. We have a couple pictures to look at. How many of you guys like going camping? Okay, going camping too? You like going camping? Yeah. Well, this is a story about camping. And as I think about it, oh, never mind. I don't have my pictures up here. Actually, I was going to bring something to show you. I'm going to go backwards here because up here in the offering picture, I'll take a couple slides back. Come on, remote. There we go. There we go. This is the area that we went camping at for the church camp out. You were camping somewhere else. That's okay. As long as we're all camping, having fun, that's fine. But this is the area we were at, but up in the Trinity Alps, and there was a lake nearby. We would go swimming at the lake. And as we were camping there, partway through the, before the weekend, in the middle of the night, some people pulled in next to us in the campsite next to us. You know how that happens sometimes when you get ready to go to sleep and the weekend's coming and somebody pulls in and starts setting up camp? Well, that's what they started doing. And as they were setting up camp, we heard a little boy, he started crying. And then, as I was, I ignored that because I've heard kids cry a lot, so I just started going to sleep. And as I started going to sleep, the flashers went off on the guy's vehicle. His headlights were flashing and his other flashers were flashing. And it woke me up and I thought, wow, this is, <laughs> I hope he doesn't keep that going for a little while. I ignored it and then my wife went out and asked him uh, if he knew that his headlights were on. And you have to understand, when I go to sleep, I'm kind of in and out of grogginess, and so I, didn't, I decided not to go out there. So he turned them off, and the next day, as uh, we were going about our activities, we ended up meeting the little boy. It seemed like the little boy was intent on coming over and seeing us because of our kids. And so he would come over, and he would try to play with Michael or other kids and try to follow them around, and we began to meet the parents. And the parents were from India originally, and the dad is a uh, product developer for Bear, the, the type of aspirin. It's like an aspirin product. And so we began talking to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, the Bible says that we're supposed to take the gospel to all the world, and then the end will come. Well, sometimes when you're visiting with somebody, it's not going to be the literature, and it's not going to be necessarily a Bible verse that comes out. It could just be being friends with them. And so... We became friends, brief friendship with them began, and the little boy came over again. And my wife noticed that he seemed to be walking around a lot and he was kind of bored. So she gave him some toys. Now these toys, let me describe them to you. There's a scoop, like a scoop to scoop sand with in it. There's a bucket. There's some toys that you can kind of stack and you can use to make sand castles with. But we were not right down by the lake, so would that be the most useful toy for somebody in a, in a forest area? Probably not. And yet that's what we had, so we gave it to him. There's some other things in there as well. Gave it to his, uh, his uh, mom, and she took it back over there, and they used it. I also gave the father some maps, because he had this little boy, and they couldn't go on these trails that we went on. We went on like a five-mile trail that was way up all the way. It was just steep the whole way. 
And so I thought, well, he could go over to Whiskey Town, or he could go over to this other place. And so we began telling him that and gave him a map. And so we had these two encounters of, of giving them something to help them. And I still remember when he brought the maps back, he was just so grateful. I thought he was going to keep the maps, because they're those free maps they give you when you go into a park. But he felt like he needed to give it back to me. And then when the mother brought back the toys, she said, thank you. It gave us time to have tea. Now, maybe that's not a big deal for us, but uh, some cultures, they have tea together, and they sit together, and they talk, and they have, must have had a good half an hour visit as parents. And as parents, sometimes we're around kids all the time. We just want to be able to have the kids do something, and then us be able to just sit and relax. Well, they got to sit and relax while, they, while their little boy played with the toys there. And I have in my pocket a cell phone, and I have the father's number in my cell phone, because I gave him my business card. And he said, I'm sorry, I don't have my cards with me, but I'll give you my cell phone number. And if you're ever in this area, he named the area, come by and I'll let you, let you stay at my house for a little while. Your kids can play in the yard and all of this. And then he asked me about what this group of people was doing over there. We were singing songs, we were reading and having stories. I said, it was a church camp out. And he seemed interested, so the next time we have a church camp out, I'm gonna call him and see if he has that weekend free, way in advance, I'll let him know way in advance. I'm gonna invite him and his family to come to the church camp out. And so I thought, I'm not sure exactly that I was a, they call it a witness in the Bible, where you see something. Well, sometimes you can see something and show that you know something by acting a certain way. And so, I guess we were witnesses with those toys that we gave this little boy, and then also with the kindness we showed. So as I wanna encourage you that you may not be able to tell somebody a whole sermon or give them a piece of literature sometimes if you don't have it, but if you show them a simple act of kindness, sometimes that will be enough. So let's pray that God can guide us to be his witnesses. Father in heaven, thank you for your love. Thank you that you tell us that the good news will go to the world and then the end will come. It may not go exactly with the methods that we have planned sometimes. Sometimes we will use literature, we'll use words, but oftentimes the kindness is what really acts out the gospel. So guide us as we try to do that as children and as adults and give us wisdom on how to approach different people in our environment that we come in contact with. Bless each child here and guide them each step of the journey all the way into the earth made new. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we've already prayed, but we want to ask you to guide us now as we open up your word, as we see that Jesus is coming soon, just like we sang about, and give us the wisdom on how to share this with those around us, we pray in his name, amen. This last couple of weeks, I've been noticing pictures on Facebook. My sister-in-law, she posted this picture. This is Cabot Creek Falls up in Oregon. Anybody ever been to the Cabot Creek Falls area, Little River area? Nobody? Okay. Well, if you, if you haven't, it's pretty easy to get to. You go up to Roseburg, you go out towards Glide, and then a road splits off there and goes out towards these beautiful areas. And you can tell by this falls. I remember as I glanced at this picture this week, a memory came back, a memory of jumping into that water and trying to swim out to those falls, but it being so cold that I, barely, <laughs> I could barely get back from that waterfalls. Uh, I was younger then, and it was kind of impulsive, but... But I had this idea that I was going to get out there and take a shower underneath, those, underneath that waterfall. You ever had that desire when you see a waterfall just to get out there and to let it come down? So this is flashing back in my mind. And then I began to remember 
that nearby, I had actually had my baptism at Hemlock Lake years and years ago, it seems like. For some of you that you think 1999, you think that's not very long ago. But for me, it seemed like a long time ago. And I still remember after the baptism, jumping out into the water, and I was going to swim all the way out to the middle and back. Kind of another impulsive moment. But, but I felt so happy and joyful just to be out there. I mean, I grew up in nature, but not really enjoying nature. I, it was a busy life. It was eventually you moved into town. But I, here I was just enjoying these things. And as I thought about Cabot Creek and I thought about Hemlock Lake, then came to mind a night where I was at a church camp out. This was the church camp out right before we had left Oregon to go to Nebraska for college. And as I was out there, I was there with a friend. I won't name him, but at any rate, we had the same last name, uh, but I won't give you his first name. But uh, here we were, these two Millers standing out there. And it wasn't my twin brother either. And we were looking at the lake. We were looking up at the sky. You can't make it out on this picture, but, but there is an Orion Nebula right in here um, on this picture. But imagine looking up in the night sky. Imagine talking to a friend who you've gone out door to door with, how you've gone out doing service projects together with, how he's felt a call to ministry and you felt a call to ministry, but he's not going to pursue it right now. You're going to be going away to pursue it. And just a sense of separation, a sense of this will probably be our last time to talk together like this. And he's, he basically raised the question, you know, would Jesus come back before I finish college? And the underlying question below that was, would I be ready? Would he be ready before Jesus returned? And I remember that experience echoing in my mind for some time. You know how when you go off to college, you go pursue a life goal, you think, well, am I even going to have time to pursue this? Because our Adventist message has been very urgent, very urgent. And you think, well, am I, should I be doing these things when the Lord's coming and I should be telling as many people as possible? That was kind of in the back of my mind. But I knew, I knew that that there was something the Lord was going to teach me in this whole process of learning. And so, would I be ready? Would Jesus come back before I finish? I mean, is he going to come back even before next week? These types of thoughts, especially in a new believer's mind, were going through my mind. And maybe sometime in your life you've experienced something similar where you wondered the same thing. That's what I was wondering as I went from there. So my question is now, here I am years later, when you think of the second coming, and the end of the world. And it's been a while since that experience. But when you think of it now, how do you feel? You say, well, you shouldn't base it on feeling. Okay, all right, fine. Maybe we shouldn't use feeling as a, as a barometer. But as we think of how you perceive something, how do you perceive it? How do you, what, do you, what thoughts come to mind when you think about the second coming? What are your initial thoughts? Anybody? Happiness, amen. Watching and be ready? Any other thoughts come to mind when you think about the world ending and Jesus coming? Joy? Okay, no more pain or suffering. Trials that we are experiencing are over with. Seeing our loved ones. Yeah, reunion day. Yeah. Mixed emotions? What emotions are you talking about? What, what kind of mixed emotions? So joy and happiness, but also sadness in case there's those who didn't make it. Okay, witnessing. Basically what you have witnessed for has come to fruition. Being in the presence of Jesus. So these are thoughts, lots of different thoughts. And today I'm not going to address all of them. 
But there could, could there be also amongst us, and maybe deep down it could be your experience at times, that there's a, a feeling of unknown. You know, I, I, f- I look at scriptures and I see how they line up and I trust them and I know that I'm going to con- try to continue trusting them, but, but what would happen if I didn't? What would happen if there was fear when Jesus came? What could I do about that? And if there's fear in anybody's mind here, and we're not talking about the, the kind of fear in Revelation 14, this idea of awe, this idea of respect, this idea of being overwhelmed by him, fear God and give glory to him. We're talking about if there is some kind of deep-seated doubt, then before we're done here, I want to at least alleviate that some. I can't claim to alleviate it all the way, but I'd like to alleviate it some because we're told this in this book, The Faith I Live By. It's a daily devotional. If you have eSword, you can get all these devotionals. Um, Lauren, thank you for pointing them out to me because I downloaded them all. And as I've been reading through them, I've been gleaning things. And I gleaned this this week. It was talking about the bridegroom coming. This is the title of the sermon. We have but a brief lifetime here. We know not how soon the arrow of death may strike our hearts. Something can just, all of a sudden, you could be going through, and you could be having this joy and this peace, and all of a sudden, it ends. We know not how soon we may be called to give up the world and all of its interests. Eternity stretches before us, each one of us. The curtain is about to be lifted, But a few short years, and for everyone now numbered with the living, the mandate will go forth. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. In other words, the person that God has guided you to be, you will be that person for eternity. But we don't know how soon this could take place. We could leave a place like this, and as she says, the arrow of death may strike our hearts, we may just... We may perish, we may go to sleep in Christ. It's a sense of urgency in this devotional. A sense that our hearts need to be right with God, not out of fear, but out of a sense of we don't know how much time we have. It's the solemnity of the times. And so I have two questions. And you've heard me ask these before, but I'll ask them again. If you were to die right now, I was just talking about the arrow of death. If you were to die right now, Have you come to the place where you know that you would have eternal life? And I visited with some of you in your homes and we've discussed this. You know without a shadow of a doubt, crystal clear, not in a sense of prideful idea of pompous, oh yeah, I know, but in a sense of, yeah, my heart is at peace with the Lord. Totally clear. I know there's always could be some in the audience and even there could be an experience you're going through at a time where it makes it kind of foggy but you're 100% certain and the second question even if you are 100% certain percent certain why should you have eternal life it's one thing to say yeah I, I believe it I know it but why and I've heard varying answers even as We've conducted visits in the home. Some believe that if they keep the commandments long enough, good enough, that eventually maybe the good will outweigh the bad. Yeah, there's a problem with that, isn't there? But, uh, and we'll get to the why in a moment here. Hold on, Ron. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm hearing the answer. 
but what I'm asking is, as far as, it, they're all mentioning Jesus dying for us as to why we should have eternal life, and that's the correct answer. But what happens if, you know how some are taught that before you go to bed, you better go through with God everything that you did wrong during the day. And I'm not saying that's wrong. It's just, what's the motive behind that? It's almost like, somehow, if I don't get everything confessed, which it almost becomes to some people, a work, then I might be lost if I die in the night. And quite frankly, that's no different than what I did as a non-Christian. As a non-Christian, or pre-Christian, whatever you want to call it, I would pray a prayer before I go to bed as fire insurance. It was basically listing everything I'd ever done wrong, and then it didn't change my behavior the next day. I'd go right back to it. So this idea of somehow following a prescription, somehow attaining a certain number of good deeds versus the bad deeds. This is not the answer. And everybody has already given you the open book answer, which is it's talking about Jesus. But I wanted to go through a few texts with you to go through this because I don't see the point in pointing to the second coming if all of us aren't on the same boat here. There was only one ark in the time of the flood. There's still only one way. And I'm going to go through that real quickly with you. Take out your Bibles. And this is just a brief Bible study, and then we're going to get into the second coming theme, how it relates to this. So John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And you can read verses 1 through 14 on your own if you want to get the whole context. I'm going to look at verses 1 through 4 and then 14. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and with Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. It's a present tense verb. It continues to shine from creation all the way down to the time of this writer, which means it's probably continuing to shine today as well. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. It reminds me of if individuals were sitting in the darkness, and all of a sudden they were to see a bright light, they were to react to that light, and deny that light, and basically try to, in their minds, not comprehend it. That's one definition. But it really means it could not, the darkness could not overtake the light. And so no matter what situation we find ourselves in, whatever our backgrounds are, it doesn't matter what has happened in our lives. If we will trust that this is true, that this passage is true, that this Word, which is the Creator Himself, is willing to enter into our darkness, then our darkness will not overtake Him. It will not overtake the light. He can actually help us overcome all the darkness. This is the beginning of this chapter. And John is going against, a, he's basically doing a polemic. He's, he's going against some of the other beliefs out there that taught that the Logos was pre-created, was created, a created being and all this. He's saying, no, the Logos, the Word Himself, created everything. And the author of life itself. And so, who is this? We know from verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There's that combination of grace mercy, kindness, but also truth. How could God be both of those? 
If the only way to be both of those is through this person. How could God say, you know what? I'm not going to just excuse what has been done, but yet I want to forgive what has been done. Be merciful. We will find that through this person, he will do both. This person, as we see here in the text, is none other than the Creator. And as you look at Isaiah chapter 9, just, I just put the summary of it up on the screen. He's called the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father. And so this is the one who's going to restore peace. This is the one, this Creator in John chapter 1, who is the promised one from all the Old Testament. But why does this person, this, this is God, why does God need to come and die for us? Somebody once said that they were going out door to door. This is Ty Gibson. And as he's going door to door, he comes across the home. And this person is an antagonist, basically trying to pick a spiritual fight. And says, you know, I could die for your sins and you can die for mine. And part of his book, one of Ty Gibson's books, goes through and tries to unpack why that can't be. But simple logic could, ask, could answer that question. You know, why couldn't you die for my sins and I die for yours? We could, but you'd only be paying for your own sins. In other words, there would be nothing after that. Because the Bible says in Romans 3 that the only thing we can earn by ourselves is death. That's why we have to combat daily, even after we become Christians, we have to keep combating daily this whole bent on going the wrong direction, this whole bent on going the wrong way. Because that's the way we are when we are born. But why does he need to come? Why couldn't he send an angel then? to die for us. If we don't die for each other, then send an angel, a perfect being who's kept God's law perfectly, dying in your place. Now you say, well, that one's a little harder, right? Not really, if you think about it. Uh, an angel, if you, think, if you want to do perfection for imperfection, I guess logically you could find that. But how does that one angel dying or, or a series of angels dying give enough to die for everybody. It's just mathematically going to be a problem eventually. And also, we find that only in the scriptures that there is only one author of good that could do that, could really perfectly know and keep and abide by everything that he's ever created and, and established, and that's God himself. So for Satan to not have a recourse to go back on and say, yeah, I remember back there in the... And when we fell, that you sent Gabriel, and he came over, and he, he tried swiping my head off, right? You know, there's, none of, there's none of that. I mean, you, there's no accusation that can go against the God of the universe dying for each one of us. Besides the fact that it's an endless stream of mercy and truth that flows from him. So Romans 3 says, yeah, we've all sinned. Romans 6 says, the wages of sin is death. But it, then it tells you there's a gift attached to that. It's like, here's what we can earn, but then look at the fine print of what God is saying. You don't have to earn that. You don't have to be that way. But how do we change? I remember sitting around a circle of friends, and I remember saying to the group, you know, I really don't want to do this type of behavior anymore that we're doing. I don't want to be hurting people. I don't want to be disrespectful. I don't want all this, these things that we were doing. And we discussed what we could do as a group or as individuals, and we came up with, what are we going to do, go play golf? I mean, be goody-two-shoes and just... So, in and of ourselves, 
it was a limited viewpoint is what we could do. We, we had plans of college and other things as well, but they had a, a negative bent. And this is what the text is saying. By ourselves, in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. There's, there's nothing we can do to pay that off. Even if we tried to go a different route in and of ourselves, we would find deep down that we did not have the right motive, and then that would disqualify us. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, it's not fair. Well, think about it. If someone does something for the wrong motive, just to appease an angry God, what value is it? It doesn't really, it's not much value. It's basically then lip service or an act. And it's not really then an expression, a true expression of the person. And so they did it, but it means nothing. So we see Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. That's the route that we're all going by ourselves. And either in our thoughts or our actions, we have all done that. We've all gone that route. We can't say that we're perfect. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll look that one up. Here's my question for you as you look it up. Since we are sin, and we'll need someone to take our place, is Jesus sin? I didn't say did Jesus sin, but I said, according to the text, is Jesus sin? All right. As long as you know the difference there. Chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You can start at verse 20. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is the foundation of Paul's ministry. I know we want to get off on all kinds of other things, but think about it. Who cares if we know all the facts about the second coming and yet we haven't told people, we haven't implored them to be reconciled to God. It's worthless then. And maybe our motive was impure. Maybe we wanted the world to end so we wouldn't have to go through trials anymore. Maybe we wanted the world to end so that our children wouldn't have to go through trials. Maybe, you know, just start thinking about it. Maybe we want the world to end because we just see this beautiful description and we want that. That's not enough. The pure motive says, yes, I want to see a perfect world. Yes, I want to see these different things. But I want these people to be with me. I care about these people. We can all work on that. Verse 21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. It's a state of being. Made him to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So even though he became sin for us, there was, sin couldn't touch him. It's, it's, it's almost like Convicting an innocent person. You know, it could, you could go through all of the consequences of all of that and, and the behaviors that go along with the person got taken to jail and all, all these things happened to that person. But deep down, they were innocent the whole time. And as much as people try to get them to confess the opposite, they, they don't confess the opposite. You see these people that are on death row just all the way down to the end. I was innocent. I was innocent. And finally, the DNA proves that they're innocent. Well, the DNA, spiritually speaking, shows that Jesus was innocent. You see how he interacted with the individuals. You see the miracles he did. You see that even deep down as he's, he's on the cross dying and take, barely struggling to take his own breath, he, call, he basically calls out, Father, forgive them. So what we find here is he became sin. A transaction occurred, and we know that started occurring in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where Matthew 26, you can read the whole chapter on your own. 
But in Matthew 26, he's sweating blood. He's saying, eventually, not my will, but yours be done. You know, sometimes that's what we, actually, that's what we need to groom in our own lives is that it's not always about what I want. Sometimes it's about what the other person wants. Sometimes it's also about what a group of believers wants, family. You have this type of thing happening where Jesus submits as he's being pressed down. You all know about olive presses and all of that. You live in this area with all kinds of olives. Pressing it down, and eventually it's got to be refined as well to bring out that product. And you have Jesus being in Gethsemane, the olive press is the Greek word there. He's being pressed down. With every major decision or sin that you have ever taken, what I've taken and done, and imagine the whole record from the time of Adam down through to that present and all the way down through to our time, to the end of time. Imagine all of that being weighed down upon one person. The guilt, the shame, the darkness. You know the darkness I'm talking about. All of that, it would be enough to kill a person. That's what's happening in the Garden of Gethsemane. This whole chapter is written about this whole thing, of him being pressed down, separated, feeling separated from the Father, that same separation we feel when something's not going right in a relationship, and especially with the Father, with God the Father. He was feeling that. And yet, we find he goes through it. He prays for this, I believe, three-hour period, because he goes and he prays for an hour, comes back, talks to his disciples, goes again a second time and a third time. So you have probably three hours of prayer there. I know we struggle with one hour prayer a day. Three hours of prayer. Gets through that. Is strengthened by an angel. And instead of saying, yeah, I've been through enough, he goes through the beatings and the mocking and the, yeah, if you're the son of God, come down from there. He goes through all of that. And you're saying, well, why is he doing this? He's doing it for you and for me. It's like a father who's willing to step in and take the punishment for his son. Or vice versa for a daughter. And this is called the gift. This is saying that he would think about you way back then and how in your life you've heard about this message already, what I'm sharing with you, or you're hearing about it for the first time now, or you're hearing it as a reminder right now. He had you and I in mind. He also knew that I needed to hear this again this week, and that's why it's in the sermon. And so Ephesians chapter 2 says we're saved by grace through faith. We can go over there. It's just a little ways over from, from Corinthians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not that of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Imagine someone provides you mercy and kindness, and you basically spit in their face. You know, a gift is extended. And so when we're talking about the gospel going to the ends of the world, what we're talking about is this type of love, this type of message that says, I would die to uphold my principles of love. That's his law. And I would die to forgive you at the same time. Mercy and truth. Grace and truth. Kissing at the cross. And yet someone says, I don't care about that. I'm going to live my own life. Or I've heard this before. I've been sitting in nursing homes 
<clears throat> and there was an individual who was sitting in a nursing home, and he basically figured he would get right with God at the end of his life, right before he died. And here he is in the nursing home, frail, uh, having issues, family nowhere near to be seen, and he feels such darkness and separation that he has a hard time even accepting that God would come near to him now. And yet all the way along the way, God had given him impressions, had sent people his way, had sent scriptures his way, had sent you know, dreams, visions, radio, whatever, his way. And he had pushed it away. The Ephesians says it's a gift that's extended. When it's extended to you, when someone is kind to you instead of fulfilling what really should happen, that's meaning they're showing grace or kindness to you. And so he's extending a gift to each one of us, and he expects us to then, in return, not just receive that, but also to give it to others. It says, not of works, lest anyone should boast. None of us are perfect. For we are his workmanship. Once we receive this gift, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You look at 1 John, it says that we will walk as Jesus walked by keeping his commandments. So this is a total package that Paul has here. It's a gift of mercy to say, you know what? Couldn't the Lord have come 2,000 years ago? You look at Hebrews chapter 1. It uses the word last days. Do you realize that since the time of Jesus, we've been living in the last days? They literally thought the end of the world was coming. They turned the world upside down with the gospel. And it was called the last days because you had a time prophecy that had reached a certain fulfillment. The Jewish dispensation was reached. And so now they were going to everybody of every nation. And time was running out. Not just for the whole world, but for each person in that world. Last days. We've been living in the last days since Hebrews chapter 1. Actually, since the time Jesus came. Because he's revealed to us in these last days through his son. So Jesus wants us to not just hear about his goodness, but then to receive that, and then we begin to be doers of that goodness. And that totally changes our life. That's why we're called this workmanship. But can I go around saying I'm saved, I'm saved, and then not show in my life? Can I go around coming to churches, attending churches, looking like a decent person, and then be a different person? Could I be one way away from church and a different person at church? You can. It's just a matter of eventually that duplicity will be found out. God himself will see it, or it can bear fruit even in a congregation. But to go around saying I'm saved, I'm saved, presumptuously to say I can do whatever I want is not appropriate. Because Ephesians is telling you that you're made for good works. That if you have lip service to this and you truly believe it, if you're truly speaking it, then it should do something to your behavior. Go to 1 John chapter 5. It mentions, though, that we can know for sure that we have eternal life. It's not a presumption. It's just saying that we can know this. 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Verses 12 through 14. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things, John says in verse 13, I write, have written to you 
who believe in the name of the Son of God. In other words, you know it, you believe, that you may know that you have eternal life. We can know that we have eternal life. You can keep reading. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So it's a complete picture. It's saying you can have the assurance. You can say, you know, I have made my heart right with the Lord and with others. But it goes on and it says, you'll continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. In verse 14, now this is the confidence we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. And so, my question is this. Is it God's will to save us? So what does the text tell us to do? Ask Him to save us. Ask Him to save you. Ask Him to save me. Paul says he dies daily. Basically, on a daily basis, at some way or another, he revisits this. To die to self, to die and be crucified with Christ means you have that in your mind. It helps you become a different person. And so once we receive that, John chapter 1, the last verse there, says, as many as received him, to them he gave right to become the children of God. He makes that possible. So that even if we have absentee fathers, mothers who are oppressive, societies that are less than perfect, maybe even the perfect couple raising us, and yet we face all kinds of struggle. Whatever the situation may be, whatever the family may have been like, John chapter 1 is saying, it doesn't matter. You are part of a bigger family, a universal family. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, if you receive him, you become a child of God. Therefore, you act like one. But what happens if we make mistakes? I know eventually there has to be consequences. I know that in my own life. I know that in upbringing. But let's not mistake consequences for somehow God being angry at us. Let's think about it. Because think about Proverbs 24. It mentions in Proverbs that a righteous man falls seven times, but he rises again. When we make a mistake... We don't just stay down in it. We don't just continue down it. We don't just say, well, yeah, I guess I'm out. And it, it's, I mean, come off of it. Think about a boxer. You know, I used to watch boxing a lot. These guys would fight up to the last round. For what? It's for that bell, right? It's just to, to, to be the victor, to be by a technicality, even if it was the winner. And so they, you see these guys get wham, just a real huge punch. And the guy's down on the ground. What makes him get up? Maybe it's the financial. I want to provide for my family. Maybe it's this. Maybe Whatever the motive is, as crazy as it seems, he gets up. Or now she gets up. For a fight? And yet we fall spiritually and some just want to stay down. It doesn't make any sense. And so the Bible says a person who truly is on the right path will get up. Jesus says, I will forgive 70 times 7. And it's, a, and it's interesting time uh, that it gives, this idea of even if 
even if we did it 70 times 7, he would forgive us. 490 times. What's he talking about? We know he's linking it to the Jewish nation, the 490 years. We also know that there's other things as well. But, but God would work with us. Doesn't mean there won't be consequences. You have things in Paul's writings where you expel the immoral brother. Do this, do that. There are consequences. There are things that have to happen to show that it's serious. The cross shows that. But he's still willing to forgive all the way down to the final breath. And so I was talking to a bull rider one day in the nursing home. And we were talking about his belt buckles that he had accumulated. And then I asked him the same two questions I asked you. And I asked him about how many times he'd gotten kicked, kicked off that bull. I mean, the bull just whoosh, and you, you can fling way up in the air. Twice your height, some of those guys go. And the bull comes along and tries to trample you down. He'd gotten injured a few times. And I said, what happens if you're injured? Because he saw God as basically... He said, well, some people believe God will never do anything to, to discipline you. And then he's like, I'm not that way. I think that God is very specific. I think that, that basically he lets you have exactly what you deserve when you do something wrong. And, and basically he, he allow you to get beat up. And I said, well, what happens when you have a child who's learning to walk? And it's one thing if they're this tall and they're learning to walk and they, they have all the capacity and all that, and, and they're... they're, they're stunted that way. You would think after a while you want to do something, you know. Uh, the whole living at home type of thing until you're 40 or 50 or whatever. Um, you know, there, there's something there that's wrong. But a child eventually should reach a milestone. And the child reaches that mile. And the pediatricians know this. They have all these milestone papers they hand out to you. And I read them all. And at a certain point, they roll over. At a certain point, they crawl. At a certain point, you got all these milestones. But imagine that the child starts walking and what are you going to do? The child, you have the child out in front of a whole group of people. Look at him. I know he walks. Look. And he falls flat on his face. And so you swoop down and you kick him in the head. Right? <laughs> That's not going to solve anything. I don't know about you, but when my children would fall, especially, especially when they learn to walk, you know, there's sometimes when they're running around, they're goofing off and they run into something. There, you know, there's a consequence there and you do comfort them. But also you instruct them that, you know, you really should... But a child at that age, when they're just learning to walk, for a father to treat the child that way, or the mother to treat the child that way, and kick the child across the room, is just not natural. And we all know what happens to those type of parents. So God would never do that. It says in the Old Testament, when Ephraim was little, I carried him. A whole tribe of people he sees as carrying like a child on his shoulders. You all have had children who gotten weak and tired, and done their best, but then they peter out. They basically go to sleep on the trail. What do you do? You pick the child up, and you carry the child. So we're talking about here, when we, we're God's children, it's not that we don't try. It's, it's that we do the best we can, and realize that when we make mistakes, He will try to correct us. He will try to help us do the right thing. We have to be willing to do that, and then when we've done all we can, He will actually carry us. He will do what He can to carry us. That bull rider as I talked to him about that, I said, what happens if you don't want to do the right thing after he's forgiven you? I said, well, I guess I'd be staying down, wouldn't I? So yeah, you'd be staying down. But does a bull rider stay down? Not until I'm dead, basically is what he said. Not unless the thing kills me, 
am I not going to get up? And that's what we're talking about. We're God's children. And it should be that type of commitment. So my question is, do you see what Jesus has done for you and for me? He's done all of this. And even down here, as we're his children, he still continues to do that. I'm not saying there's not correction. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten and correct. But do I see what he's done for me? Do I desire to have him lead my life? That is really what's going to counteract the Antichrist at the end, is a willingness to have him lead our lives. Because when we get down to the next week's sermon, Ron's going to share how he overcame basically being a drug dealer. All right? That's another thing. But what happens when we get way down to the end and we're in the final scenes the week after Ron shares next week, we'll be talking about what it means to when overcome, overcoming ceases. But until then, we have to continue to overcome. And so do I desire to have him lead my life all the way through? Because if I do, then if some counterfeit comes along, then I know exactly when that counterfeit is leading me astray. If he's leading my life. If he is not leading my life. If it's the media, if it's fear, if it's my experience, if it's all these things, those things will be futile at the end. You all know about it now because look at what's happening to the media in the last two years. It's, you don't even know who's telling the truth anymore on there. Maybe you do. I, I turn it off because I'm tired of sorting through it. But we find if we have the right principles, the right one leading our lives, then as we trust him, as we continue to surrender to him, we will serve him and we'll be his child. So in the contemplation of Christ, we linger on the shore of love that is measureless. We endeavor to tell of this love and language fails us. I can't even, with all these texts and I could go through beautiful stories of it, it still would fail to tell you of his love. It's like an endless shore. It's like standing out there on one of these beaches and looking at those waves and basically being lost in it. That's exactly what we do when we begin to contemplate what Christ has done for us. We consider his life on earth, his sacrifice, which we looked at briefly, his work in heaven as our advocate. Right now, he's still helping us. And the mansions he is preparing for those who love him. And we can only exclaim, oh, the height and depth of the love. It's nothing we've ever experienced here. Except for through him. And every true disciple, it's like sacred fire. Maybe the strange fire at the end is the opposite then. Burns on the altar of the heart. It was on the earth that the love of God was revealed through Christ. It is on the earth that His children are to reflect this love through blameless lives. Thus sinners will be led to the cross to behold the Lamb of God. And so as we're His children, we then linger more on Him. We begin to have this love and the sacred fire. And we reflect that then in our lives. Not necessarily perfect lives, but blameless, meaning as far as heaven's concerned, you're his child. That's all that heaven really looks at in the record. If you look at your sins are all blotted out in final judgment, if you're in Christ, then what is left? What you've done is his child. That's all the universe sees. And so we stand on the shore. Matthew 24 says, many will come saying, I am the Christ. They'll have different messages. We'll talk more about this next week. You will hear of wars, rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. But if you endure to the end, in other words, remain calm, patient, you will be saved. Stand fast on what he has taught you. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world for a witness. And we think about witness, we think about 
in court, and we're talking about a judgment. And the final judgment, what we do and what we say to people around us, will be either bearing witness for God or against God. And so if we're sharing this good news, if it's somehow changing us in how we behave and also what we do and what we say, then this has ramifications for the judgment. The gospel has ramifications for the judgment. That's why in Revelation 14, they are tied together in the three angels' messages. They come with the everlasting gospel, saying, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Yes, there's the abomination. Yes, there's fleeing to the wilderness. Yes, there's great tribulation, false Christ. But really, it's this that is the ending. The gospel is the ending. The gospel is shared, and immediately after the tribulation, it brings about tribulation, or the pressure, our own Gethsemane, our own pressure cooker, if you are, our own problems. The sun will be dark and the moon will not give her light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Not like they just flee away permanently, but, but something happens to our world to darken the world. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. In heaven, meaning not some thousand years in some Middle Eastern country or something like that. In heaven he appears. He basically gathers his people. And so the sign, what is the sign? Then appeared the sign. And the disciples said in Matthew 24, show us a sign. You see in Matthew 24, 24, the false Christs have false signs. And so it's a play on words. The sign, the indicator that you really have to pay attention to. To counteract, even in Revelation 13, 14, there's a false prophet that does signs or has false signs. The same word that we have here. The way to counteract it is to focus on the Son of Man in heaven, to know what it looks like when he returns, to know what it means to be in him. And the sign includes 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which we read, a resurrection. The time is coming when many false Christs will come. And I don't know exactly what it's all going to look like other than what the great controversy shares, but eventually it involves a personation of Jesus. And the only way to then counteract that would be to know him. We will be lost if we don't know him. All the prophecies will mean nothing if we don't know him. Thankfully, the Lord is preparing others from other denominations because they believe that an antichrist will appear in the Middle East. But do we believe that Satan could appear in the Middle East? Now that's, that's really the problem. We have a certain way of looking at things, and we, we, we could be caught off guard if we are not open to saying, you know what? We have the main details, but unless we know Jesus, unless we're really close to him, we could easily be thrown off. We need to really know him because he's the one who calls and brings us out of the graves. And so when he comes, all will have had a chance to know and share the gospel. That's the bridegroom coming. The birth pains and the trials will be over, and we'll talk more about those next week, and the sign will appear. This is all what happens when he comes, just from these few texts we have here. Everybody will have had a chance to know and share the gospel. Birth pains and the trials will be over with. And then the sign will appear. And the questions I had at the beginning, would Jesus come back before I finished college? The answer, obviously, is no. I'm, I'm still in college. Some of you are going to college or getting ready to go to college. Or some of you have been through college, right? So you all know the answer is no. He could have. If you look at the way things have progressed fastly, faster and faster since that time. But the real underlying question is, would I be ready for the end? That was the real question. And as my friend and I shook hands and gave each other a hug, because that was really the last time I saw him in person, because he went way astray after that. 
I have not seen him since. The real question was, he was saying, would I be among the ones at the end who are ready? Would you be with me, Murray, at the end, and I with you? I mean, we had this David uh, friendship type of thing, Jonathan friendship. And I'm saddened, but I'm still planning to be among the one, one of the ones at the end. What about you? may not look exactly like this artist's rendition of it, but if I know him now, and I'm sharing him, and I'm not getting distracted by all the birth pains and everything, then I will be ready for this sign. He comes. Our closing song is this effect, and all I'm going to do is, after the song plays, what I want to do is just have a moment of silence before the closing prayer. And that moment of silence is between you and God. It's not, I'm not going to direct it. I'm not going to tell you what to pray. I'm not going to put anything in your mind. I'm just going to allow you to have time with God and say, you know what? These are things I need to do as far as accepting his gift, if you're doing it for the first time, as far as recommitting it, as far as maybe even saying, you know what? The picture of God I have is way off. I want this other picture that the Bible is presenting. Or you're recommitting to him. Whatever the commitment may be, after this song, play, we sing this song together when he comes, then there'll be a pause for that prayer between you and God. Just moments of silence, and then we'll have closing prayer. I'm going to invite our accompaniment to come up here and help us with the closing song, and we will sing it. Words will be up on the screen. Have a moment of silence.
Father, you've told us that whatever we ask according to your will, you hear us. And if you hear us, we can believe that we will have what we've asked of you. And so right now we're asking for some of us for the gift of salvation for the first time or for the first time we've acknowledged it anyway. For others, we want to recommit our lives to you. And for all of us, Lord, help us to share this message of your goodness with those around us until you come. We pray in Jesus' name.